Hi everyone, and welcome to Nice to Know. I'm Dr. Robin Schenk, and this is usually the podcast where I interview everyday scientists about what they know. But today is a special episode because there is no guest scientist. I guess rather I'm going to interview myself about something that I know that is very topical at the moment. Last week, basically one of the best things of 2020 happened. And I know there's not very much competition for that, but anyways... The Nobel Prize for Chemistry was awarded to Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna for their discovery of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. Now this is huge for so many reasons. First off, they're two women. For all of the Nobel Prizes, the number of female winners is less than 60 versus almost 900 men. And for the Chemistry Prizes, only 4% of winners have been women. This reflects the slow but surely growing number of women in higher levels of STEM, This will hopefully continue to improve with time, but in the meantime is absolutely inspirational for aspiring young women scientists. Secondly, this technology is monumental. CRISPR-Cas9 technology is so revolutionary that there is no way it would not eventually get the Nobel Prize. It's literally upended the way that scientists, including myself, do genetics research, and it may well end up being a prize also for physiology and medicine in later years if we can apply this technology to treating human disease. But to understand all of this, we need to know, what is CRISPR-Cas9? Put simply, it's a method for editing the DNA in a cell, or gene editing. Your DNA is like a big book of blueprints, but all written in a code basically to save space and pages. This code is the DNA bases. You may have heard of them. Adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine, or ATCG. You know when you see like a drawing of DNA and it's got those little bar lines in between the two helices? Those are the bases, and they're basically just small molecules. But a string of DNA bases is code for a gene, and to continue the analogy, each gene is an individual blueprint to make something. That something is a protein, and as you've heard in previous episodes, proteins just like do everything in the cell. I think most of us are familiar with this concept of genes, in the sense of the things that we inherit from our parents. But I don't think so many people are aware of that, like, functional output. So, say you have a gene for blue eyes. That gene produces a protein that influences eye color. For those of you that are interested, that protein is called OCA2, and it's involved in melanin production, melanin being the chemical that gives us pigment. If you have blue eyes, it's because of a lack of melanin in the eye, because you lack that protein, because your parents have a mutation that affects the OCA2 gene that they inherited from their pasty white ancestors in Northern Europe. Now in theory, with gene editing technology such as CRISPR-Cas9, I could edit that mutation in OCA2 and therefore give you brown eyes instead of blue eyes. In fact, if I know the genetic code of any gene, I can edit it. Gene editing is actually nothing new. We humans have been able to do this since around the 70s, and in fact it has already been awarded a different Nobel Prize in 2007 for physiology and medicine. But the huge revolution with CRISPR-Cas9 is that it is extremely rapid and enables us to target the genes that we want to edit with much greater precision. The principles of old-school gene editing and CRISPR-Cas9 are similar though. Basically, you have a gene that you know the code or DNA sequence of. 
You then introduce another piece of DNA that is really similar to that gene, but has some changes or mutations that you want to introduce. When a cell replicates itself, it needs to produce an extra copy of its DNA to pass on to its new baby cell. So basically, rewriting this big book of code. If there's an extra piece of DNA that looks super similar to the original copy, it might get incorporated into the new copy instead of the original. If this happens, then you've successfully put a mutation into the DNA, and that baby cell is a mutant. You can then select for this mutant and do interesting stuff afterwards. CRISPR-Cas9 operates with a similar principle, except that before, when gene editing started, there was way less control over where the gene would go, and sometimes it would get accidentally added into the DNA genome, but like in the wrong place, so not replacing the gene that you wanted to change. It was in fact pretty rare to get your mutation in the right place, and scientists used like a bunch of tricks to pick out these rare events, but I won't go into that here. The question is, if gene editing is nothing new, why is CRISPR so special? And it really comes down to the precision and speed of CRISPR-Cas9. The gene editing methods that I just described rely on a fair bit of luck to happen. You might get the mutation you want, and you might not. CRISPR enables us to target the mutation to the right gene, and therefore increases the probability of getting that mutation. In order to understand why, let's go back a step to understanding how CRISPR-Cas9 works, and do so by understanding how Charpentier and Doudna discovered it. It's such a cool story, because it really illustrates the beauty of basic scientific research. That is, research that doesn't have any particular application in mind. It's just trying to understand the basics of how things work. You see, we humans did not invent CRISPR. It was invented, really, by bacteria, because they use this system as a defense mechanism against viruses. Yes, even bacteria are constantly battling their own pandemics. Charpentier and Doudna were interested in how bacteria did this, not in trying to discover better ways to perform gene editing. Around 2006, it was discovered that many different types of bacteria contain these so-called CRISPR sequences in their DNA. CRISPR standing for Clustered Randomly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. I think we can all agree that CRISPR is much simpler. These sequences actually were originating from bits of virus DNA. So basically, these bacteria had made their own notes from previous infections and incorporated bits of the viral DNA into their own DNA. The purpose of this? Well, from this DNA, small photocopies can be made. More specifically, RNA molecules. RNA is similar to DNA, except it's like half of the helix. Generally, RNA is like the middleman between the DNA and the protein. The cell first makes a photocopy of the DNA in order to then build from that blueprint. The key thing is that RNA and DNA can match up with each other because of that code that I mentioned before. The A's with the T's and the G's and the C's can fit together like puzzle pieces. When bacteria make these photocopies, if some viral DNA is present, the RNA and the DNA can match up, and then also signal to the bacterial cell that they have an unwelcome visitor. Next enters the Cas9. Cas9 is an enzyme, and you may have heard the term molecular scissors. This is true. Cas9 acts to cut DNA, and it does so in a very special way, breaking both of the DNA helix strands. Cas9 will only do this where it has been told to, and it needs the CRISPR RNA to tell it where to cut. After Cas9 has done the cutting of the bits of viral DNA that the CRISPR RNAs have alerted it to, the DNA is messed up, and so the virus can't be infectious anymore. 
Charpentier and Doudna, along with two other very important people, a PhD student Christoph Chilinski in Charpentier's lab and postdoc Martin Yenek in Doudna's lab, were trying to work out how these components work together in this bacterial immune response. Originally, they hypothesized that you just needed the CRISPR RNA and the Cas9 enzyme. However, what they discovered was that there was an extra RNA molecule, called a tracer RNA, required to form a little three-part molecular trio to make the cutting actually happen. The team worked out exactly how much of this tracer RNA was required, and realized that you could engineer the tracer RNA and the CRISPR RNA together, literally just put them into one molecule, and also make them custom-made to target whatever you wanted, not just bits of viral DNA in bacteria. So the Nobel Prize was awarded to Charpentier and Doudna, who uncovered the mechanism of this process, but other groups around the world adapted it for use to modify the genomes of mouse and human cells, most famously Feng Zhang of the Broad Institute in Boston. What I love about this story is that it was two scientists in different parts of the world, Doudna at UC Berkeley and Charpentier at the time at Umea University in Sweden, with a common interest in uncovering this mechanism of Cas9. They collaborated on this project because they were both interested in bacterial immune systems, interested in biology, in the fundamental aspects of life. So how is CRISPR now the biotechnology tool? With CRISPR, you introduce a so-called guide RNA molecule that matches the sequence of the gene that you want to mutate. The guide RNA brings the Cas9 enzyme to the part of the DNA that you want mutated, and it makes its cut. This so-called guide RNA has that element of the tracer RNA that I mentioned, as well as matching the sequence of the gene that you want to mutate. The guide RNA brings the Cas9 enzyme to the part of the DNA, or the gene, that you want mutated, and it makes its cut. The reason you get mutations in this gene is because this so-called double-stranded break rings the alarm for a DNA repair process. In general, you don't want your DNA being all broken apart, so your cell is basically like, yo, clean up on aisle four. There are actually many kinds of DNA repair pathways, and the one triggered by double-stranded break happens to be, well, not employee of the month. It's error-prone, so it often makes mistakes. But for CRISPR-Cas9, this is advantageous. It can introduce mutations that disrupt the gene sequence, resulting in what we call a knockout, so you lose the gene. Or alternatively, if you provide another piece of DNA, like in the previous gene editing methods, then this piece of DNA can get incorporated to repair the DNA, and then instead of deleting the gene, you've replaced it with your version, which has a mutation. Of course, you need to physically put the guide RNA and the Cas9 enzyme into the cell, but biologists have a bunch of techniques for doing that, which I won't go into today. For context, I've used this technology since I started my PhD back in 2014, and the technology itself was discovered around 2012. I was using it to delete genes in cancer cell lines in order to see whether cancer cells were dependent on any particular genes for their survival. We also used it to genetically engineer mice with the similar end motive in mind. Genetic engineering of lab mice used to take over a year to actually get all of the luck on your side with selecting of correctly mutated cells. Now it can take as little as three months. And it's not just human or mouse cells that can be edited. CRISPR-Cas9 has huge biotechnological applications. For example, in crops, you can engineer them to be resistant to parasites or produce greater yields. Late last year, a pilot experiment of mosquitoes engineered to be infertile were released in Burkina Faso in an attempt to prevent the spread of malaria. This is truly just the beginning of CRISPR-Cas9 technology creeping into everyday life. 
So what's the future for CRISPR-Cas9 in health and medicine? If I can so easily edit my mice to have different genes, then the next obvious step is with humans. But with great power comes huge responsibility. If we can edit genomes, we can create perfect humans. Hypothetically, we find out what genes are required for intelligence, height, talent, etc. Then we put them into super babies. That's serious sci-fi stuff. Perhaps something that's less terrifying to think about is gene therapy. Again, nothing new, but CRISPR could seriously revolutionize this because of its speed and precision. You could repair genes such as the one that causes Huntington's disease, or sickle cell anemia, or cystic fibrosis, the list goes on. But, and there's a very big but, we have to think very carefully before we go throwing this into humans. Not just because of the seriously dicey ethical concerns of creating perfect human beings, but also because the technology is far from perfect. Although you get the targeted mutation that you want, the chance that the Cas9 enzyme makes cuts in the wrong place, so-called off-targets, can still happen. And a lot of focus on CRISPR-Cas9 research today isn't trying to make the process even more precise so that it could be used in humans. Because the last thing you want to do is add accidental mistakes to the DNA of a cell and then put it into someone. Nevertheless, I do foresee that this is something that will be happening, if not within my lifetime, then surely within the next generations. That's a pretty big bombshell note to end on. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode and that it's helped you to understand this year's Chemistry Nobel Prize. Also, to clarify, I know it's very confusing, especially for my dear friend Giovanni, who you may remember from episode two. Yes, these are technically biologists winning the Chemistry Nobel Prize, but it's because technically it's biochemistry, dealing with these biological molecules of DNA, RNA, and of course, proteins. So if you liked this little episode, don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, and tell your mom to also have a listen. If you want more nice to know, I'm usually interviewing scientists every second Tuesday, and you can find out more by following me on Twitter. I'm at Robin Sciences. That's Robin with a Y and the plural of science. Otherwise, if you want to contact me, you can email nice to know the podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and see you for the next episode.